Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You can go in and let's say this is a, a distressed homeowner who for whatever reason can't make their mortgage repayments um, you can go in and assume the loan without dealing with the banks at all this is property investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories mindset and strategies I'm Tyrone Sham and in this episode, we talk to international investor and Amazon best-selling author from Freedom Warrior, Selena Kilkani. Kilkani enlightens us on joint ventures in the US and explains how you can use the bank's flexibility to your advantage. She also discusses how you can get into development with very little money. Kilkani teaches us from her experience and what you need to know about joint ventures in the United States. So for me, the word joint ventures is really about leveraging into networks and other people's skill sets, um, access to deal flow, uh, just lots of different ways you can kind of describe joint ventures. But, um, you know, in the space of alternative investing, it, it has a particular meaning for me. Okay. Well, maybe let, let, let's sort of talk a little bit about that. What, what does it mean for you? So I think um, joint ventures in the traditional sense, I think, means just partnering in order to achieve an outcome. Um, in the context of alternative investing, um, joint ventures for me is about how do I leverage the network, the skills, the access to deals in order to be a more passive armchair investor. Um, so, you know, to some degree, a lot of deals um, that you and I do could probably classify as JVs. But when I talk about joint ventures in, in, the, in my world, the thing that distinguishes it from other kinds of deals is the ability to profit share. And I think that's, for me, that's um, probably the, the, the minute point of difference. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think, you know, the more passive it is from an investor's point of view, the better it will be for all of us. Um, obviously, there'll be somebody who's in this kind of potentially joint venture partnership that would need to do the work and I usually call them the working partner and I've been a few of those and then I've sort of been the money partner where I've just brought the funds in and, and sort of teed up the, the legal side and also putting all the accounts and everything together. But still, there will be some kind of agreement that comes into place. And, and joint ventures, I guess from experience, they've come in different various stages and also comes in at sort of various different levels. So, you know, when I talk about different levels, I'm talking about the percentages of what you get because everyone that comes in is going to bring in a different skill set as you've you know, alluded to, but also you'll get a different sort of reward share in, in part of the deal. So, what about your experience? What kind of uh, joint ventures have you been in, involved in the past? 
Yeah, look, um, I'm, I'm happy to share some even most recent uh, deals that I've done. I think the, um, the thing that you just touched on, which I think is really, you know, it, it's quite an interesting point is I think when people go into joint ventures, um, especially if you're new to joint ventures, you have no sense of what's fair and what's not. And so I think if you are going into a joint venture, I think the first thing is you want to make sure your your capital is protected. That's obviously the, the first thing and that you have full faith in the person that you're doing the deal with. But I think the second part is, you know, as you said, like every deal is completely different in terms of profit share and um, what level of protection you have and so forth. So I, I do think, you know, if you are thinking of doing a joint venture, you know, having a little bit of um, context for what's normal in a particular space is really, really important. Because here's the thing, like one, one of the uh, things that we've talked about previously is like lending deals or, um, you know, syndications or funds where your return can be capped at a certain rate. Um, and, you know, that has to be palatable. But in a joint venture, what you're saying is, well, I want um, a rate of return that's going to be on par with how this deal pans out. So, you know, if the deal is a home run, you want to actually have a piece of that profit. Um, so I think understanding what's normal for a return is really important because otherwise you can go in there and feel like, well, as the money partner, I want a big profit share or, or as the, you know, working partner, maybe you want a big share of the deal. So I just think it, you really need to sort of have context for what's fair. How would you work that out though? That's, that's the biggest challenge because even when I went into my first few joint ventures, I did negotiate and you know, being a money partner but at the end of the day when you work out the, the amount of work that's involved from say for example the working partner, it was fairer in that instance for him have a larger pie because he's going to be doing a lot more of the work. Um, but you know how how do we determine what's fair and what's not fair in these type of deals? Yeah, look, that that is, I think the, the the most interesting point of conversation around JVs is exactly what we're saying is how do you decide if it's fair? And uh, I'll give you an example. I have a, a really close friend who has, in recent years, become a very successful developer. And initially, when he started out, um, lots of his friends wanted to jump in on deals with him. So effectively JV to some degree. And he was offering them a profitable but fixed rate of return and then making quite a lot of money in terms of the profit on the development itself. And, you know, he was doing all the work. He was obtaining all the finance. He was, you know, these these guys were really just piggybacking his experience and efforts. Um, and after doing a couple of those, he turned around and made the decision that he, he just wasn't going to take people's money and he wasn't going to JV with people anymore because for the amount of headache for him, it wasn't worth, he, he could get the money. Yeah. So I think the thing to recognize is that, you know, I, I think in media, we give a lot of importance or, you know, we, we shine the torch on people who they're the money, so they have the power. And I think that's definitely true if your if your JV partner his capacity or her capacity to go ahead depends on you putting the money in um, and that way you know you've got a lot of power but frankly most people who are worth JVing with they don't necessarily need your money you know and you're you're really you can't access those sorts of returns without them so I think it's really about recognizing who you're working with and 
you know, let's say, for example, you're working with someone super experienced who gets access to killer deals and there's just no way in your world you could access them, you're going to maybe trade a bit of return for safety, aren't you? Um, whereas if you're going with someone who's less experienced, um, maybe greener in lots of different ways, but they're offering you a higher return, then, you know, you've you've sort of adjusted your risk return there and so therefore maybe that makes more sense. So I think it's about looking at lots of different variables but experience, you know, how much time is involved, um, what's your level of exposure, how much of an armchair experience are you going to have uh, and then looking at what's normal within industry. Um, so, for example, like some of the deals that, that, that I've seen that you do, um, super lucrative but who I think the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you happy with that return as an investor? If you want to be greedy and say, well, no, hang on, I want a share of the development profit as well, then people may or may not want to do business with you, I think is the upshot. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely agree with you on that side of things. And what I wanted to add as well too is, and, and I've experienced this, you know, it can be very easy to look at a deal and say, wow, you know, there's a lot of profit based on the paper and, you know, it might say take 12 months or so. But if you're working with someone who may not be as experienced, the deal actually may take a lot longer which ultimately eats into the profits. And I can tell you from experience, I've experienced that and <laughs> it's hard because initially when you look at it on paper and you've done all the numbers and everything stacks up, you know, I thought I would be earning an extra say 100K on top of you know, the profits and stuff but due to unforeseen circumstances and also due to some, some lack of experience from a developer that I was working with, um, we basically, the, the whole project extended for more than 12 months um, than it was anticipated and therefore at the end of it, we made no money at all, no even any profit. Luckily for the money partner, he still had funds and because we agreed upon that, he'd still have his percentage cut and share. And that can mean the difference between a successful investment or successful development to a deal that, you know, where you're working with an experienced developer who has had the experience to get it done on time. So, you got to take that in because you know, sometimes you want that safety to know that, yep, you know, this guy is going to be able to deliver on time and also deliver a profit. It's better to have a profit than to have something that's delayed and experience a longer time frame and not even make money at the end of the day when doing joint venture. And hence, that's a reason and the risk that people will need to consider when looking at doing joint ventures as well too. So, that's my two cents on that and experience. I think you raise a good point. I think people forget that, you know, saying, say, for example, like you're going to get a 20% return on your money or a 30% return on your money, the longer that drags out, the more diluted the effective return um, because you could have been doing other deals. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think, you know, timeline and capacity to stick with timeline matters. And also opportunity costs too because as we've just kind of talked about, if you invested all your, you know, a large chunk of your funds into this particular development expecting say a 20% return in say 12 months but it turns out that it's going to take say 18 or 24 months and you get maybe a 10% return, that opportunity cost of that extra say 12 months that you've lost in there could have been reinvested those funds somewhere else that may have returned you maybe a close to 10% return for say 6 months and you do that over and over again. Hence the reason why I look at opportunities and 
work out and say, you know, if I have to invest my money at this period of time, what is the potential opportunity cost that I may have to forego for another opportunity down the track? And sometimes it might be just better waiting, you know, for an extra three or four months to find the right one than to, you know, jump into something that looks really, really good on paper, but you don't know due to all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, let, let, let's delve into maybe an example of, of your experience of, say, a joint venture that you've done in the past. Run some sort of background behind, you know, what you've done and some maybe some numbers behind it too. Yeah, sure. Well, look, um, I think the first thing that I want to kind of uh, distinguish between is in my world, there's what I call short-term JV deals and then long-term. Um, funnily enough, they're actually a similar length. Um, you know, short-term is anything up to two years. And then long-term is theoretically two years to five years. But on average, they all end up being around the two-year mark. So um, the the major difference is how the deals get structured. So in the alternative space, predominantly uh, where I lean now is mainly towards uh, US-based JVs. And that's because the, the network that I have there, they're really good at these small JV deals. And the way that... Um, Typically, the ones that I've probably done most in the last, even say, 12 months have been the short-term ones. So one that I did um, February last year, I'll go back to Feb because then it's come to fruition, I did a 12-month short-term joint venture and the terms of the deal were um, there was a particular house that my uh, trusted advisor had acquired um, I'll, I can give you the numbers. Basically, they'd acquired it for ninety six thousand, and it was in it was a beautiful house in a really great um, great area. And basically, the after repair value was one hundred eighty eight thousand. Um, so huge margin for for sort of error there. Um, in today's world, it was probably worth about one hundred fifty. The loan that he was looking for was $19,900, which is tiny. And when you looked at the photos, really what they were doing was more of an update, a cosmetic update. There was no major structural anything. It was just a bit of paint and updating some bits and pieces. And, And obviously in the States, 20 grand goes a really, really long way compared to where 20, you know, 20 grand here will barely even get you a bathroom. Um, So... You know, and the interesting thing over there is how the deals come into play. There's, as I've said previously, like there's so many different ways to acquire real estate that we just don't have over here. So, for example, you can go in and let's say this is a a distressed homeowner who, for whatever reason, can't make their mortgage repayments. Um, You can go in and assume the loan without dealing with the banks at all. so, you know, in terms of how did someone get a hold of a beautiful property like this at such a cheap rate, it's probably because they went in and assumed the mortgage. So the mortgage was um, 96400 So they said, well, I'll just assume that. And so that's how come they've acquired it for such a cheap rate. Um, basically, uh, you know, with the, the loan-to-value ratio, with my money included, the mortgage plus my money, was um, only 60%. So as I said, like huge equity cushion, which I'm always like, that's that matters to me. Um, and the terms of the deal were, um, and this is where why I call, um, particularly in the world that I'm in, I call them a hybrid deal. Um, so that they're a joint venture, meaning I, I do get a, a 
a taste of the profit, but um, it's hybrid because it's a lending deal as well. So it's a lending deal. So I'm going to get on my 20,000, I'm going to get 11% per annum for, for the money. And then on top of that, I'm going to get a 10% profit share. Now the actual, I, I picked this deal out because it's, um, it actually went full turn, but um, so I made 11% interest and my profit share at 10% gave me an overall return of, I think it was 22 point something percent, 22%. Um, and typically, um, cause obviously $20,000 is not crazy money, but you know, if I've got sort of five or six of those going at any one time, they average somewhere between, um, I'm going to say 18 to 27, 28% per annum. And so what I love about these deals is it's not like you've got to have a ton of money sitting around. Every time you've just got a little chunk, you can throw it in, throw it in and, and get, you know, a pretty good, a much better rate of return, a high degree of downside protection, um, and it's short. So let's say, for example, I'm thinking that I'm going to do some other deal in 12 months. Um, I know the this particular de- deal maker has a plan A, B, C, D in in order to get me my money. It's not just it doesn't hinge on a refinance. It doesn't require sale it's it's like there's multiple ways for for them to get the money out so I know that I'm going to have that money and that allows me to plan then for what other deals I'm going to do the only thing I would say about the short-term JVs is you are in second position so you're not in first the the bank where the primary mortgage they're in first position and, and I'm in second but again because we've only got the total debt is only 60% of the value of the home today I'm actually okay with that Coming up after the break, Kilkarni explains how much litigation would cost if a deal goes bad. I actually perceive this to be a lower risk deal than even a traditional buy and hold in our market. She lets us in on the American investment secrets that the Australian banks don't provide. In the States and in other nations, the banking system, the way that it has evolved is much more entrepreneurial, it's much more flexible. As well as her tips and tricks for investors looking into joint ventures. And as the investor, your job is to have a set of rules for what you will and won't do and then apply those rules to every deal. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, Property Investor. Is your cash or equity currently earning you 1 to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Next, we discuss the consequences if a deal goes bad and the timeframes and costs involved to recover the initial funds. It's minimal. And this is why, um, you know, for, for various reasons, I actually perceive this to be a lower risk deal than even a traditional buy and hold in our market because the downside protection is phenomenal. The way the process around um, and different states are different and so you need to be mindful of that. 
but the the process of going in and taking possession of that property is very straightforward doesn't cost very much and um i mean i i in this instance like you know the the jv partner owns the deal but I, i'll tell you like the worst case scenario from my perspective on this particular deal and one of the reasons i like this particular jv partner is he has a waiting list of ready buyers like a waiting list because he there's so many moving parts to the model of this business and this strategy that he's like and that's the thing like you know you got to work with someone who's an expert in one particular strategy as this guy is and so the 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 the, the process around acquiring um, properties like this requires a whole team of people in multiple states. The whole process of renovating, you know, what, at whatever level requires a team of people. The whole process of selling or refinancing requires a whole team of people. So that's why there's no way in a million years as a single investor, I could time effectively find the deals, find the people to buy it, structure the deal for sale. It just isn't worth it. Whereas I go in and I say, well, look, Let's say, for example, on this one, I know I'm going to get my 11% as my interest payment, and that's usually because the the property's cash flowing during, like it's got a tenant, and so I can see the numbers around that. Um, and they will usually get give those to you as part of the due diligence pack, and you can see, okay, well, you're already collecting more than enough money to pay me, so I'm happy. But the the biggest downside protection I see with this is the worst case scenario if it all turns to custard. I see you using you're liking my food metaphors. Um, is that um, we'll just sell it to the next person on the wait list at 80% of the property value. Um, and that's the worst case scenario. So then I go, okay, well, let's say we did sell it at 80%. And typically what we're trying to do with these deals is that the the velocity of money and how quickly you can turn these deals over matters. So we're not trying to get top dollar. So this this property in the open market might be worth, let's say it's a couple of hundred thousand, but I don't want to wait around to put it on the, you know, the the realestate.com equivalent and wait for a buyer to come and get their finance. I like that he has a massive list of already vetted qualified buyers who are ready to go. And the reason they are so hot and the list is so long is because what we're trying to do with these deals is we're not trying to get market rate. We are trying to sell slightly below so that we can sell fast and, you know, get the cash back and minimise the risk of that there's no chance in in all of the deals that I've seen, they've never run over. They've never run over because plan A is you sell it, at, you know, to the, the list. Plan B, you sell it in the open market. Plan C, you continue to cash flow the property and you negotiate to take it over. Like there's so many different ways to skin the cat that I just feel that, that you know, that, that idea of having multiple exit really, really appeals to me. Definitely. And I agree with you on that side. I mean, I've learned from other developers that having multiple exit strategies is your protection because otherwise, if you rely on just one exit strategy and that doesn't go through, what happens next? You just kind of get stuck. So, it's it's so important to look at multiple and at least having minimum two or three is so, so important because things can change. The market can change. Developer might you know, have some other things that may happen to them, you don't know. And and that's the thing. And plan plan for the unplanned or plan for the worst case scenario if things do really do go to custard as well. 
I do want to ask you a little bit more about this assumed mortgage, which I have never heard that term before and listeners may be scratching their head before when you mentioned, what does that all mean? How, how, how did that work when you said assumed mortgage? So, in Australia, if you buy a piece of real estate, there's really only one way to transact it. You, um, you have to involve a conveyancer or a solicitor and we have to transfer title if there is any lending required for the deal, the banks have to be involved and they will vet you, they will vet your finances, they will look at the deal and then they'll say yes or no. In the States and in other nations, the banking system, the way that it has evolved is much more entrepreneurial, it's much more flexible and so it just lends itself to lots of different ways of transacting property. Um, so. One of the questions that someone asked me once in a, um, a Q&A was, well, you know, what does the days on market look like? Because that's a, a metric that we go to often in, in our market. And it's a relevant metric because there's only one channel that people can, you know, transact real estate. And so it means something. Over there, the concept of days on market, it doesn't actually mean much because you don't know exactly how many properties are getting moved and transacted through other channels. There's, you know, you can assume a mortgage, you can quit title a deed to someone else, meaning you just give the deed. You can do tax liens, which means that, say, for example, your rates haven't been paid, the council have the right to swoop in, take the property off you and then sell it um, for peanuts, cents in the dollar. So there's so many different ways to transact real estate that I know we're deviating now massively from our JV topic, but it's um it's it, it just makes if you've got an entrepreneurial mind that's why we all scratch our heads when we think of people like Donald Trump um because we go you know how how does a guy like that end up so wealthy and it's because the way to do deals in the states literally means you don't need any money there are ways to transact real estate so if I, if you look at the JV deal I just gave you um, the JV partner has gone in, assumed the mortgage, and then put it together with my money to do some cosmetic tart up in the kitchen, and then it's gone up massively in value, or it's it's worth a lot already. Um, and like, I don't have to do anything for that, and he didn't even put any money into the deal. So he's he's made money from something. He's going to give me a 10% profit share and he's going to make 90% of whatever profit's left. But seriously, for the work done, is it worth it to me to earn whatever? Let's say I earned 18% on that deal. Absolutely. I didn't have to do anything. Um, so I think that's the question I'm always asking myself is, I can see sometimes in the JV deals that I do that my JV partner's making a lot of money. But the question that I keep coming back to is, is am I happy for the risk that I'm taking and for the time it took me to vet the deal, am I happy with my return? Like to, to, root, to run my eye through over that deal, I looked up some comparable sales, I looked up the, you know, the, what's happening in that market, I looked at different aspects of the contract and I went, yep, looks great. Probably took me 30 minutes and I've made, you know, a few thousand bucks. You know, the loan was only 20 grand so it's not, you know, I can't retire off that one deal. I like a couple of things. The reason there's a couple of things I like about the deal. Number one, I get paid every month. So I'm not waiting till the end of the deal to see the money. 
Um, and number two, um, you know, I'm happy with my 10% profit share. And so that, and I probably should give you an example of a longer term deal because in a long term JV deal, they sort of look the same, but the major difference is I'm in first position. So what we've done is we've gone and acquired a property that's massively under market. Now, whether we assume the mortgage or bought it through some other channel, it's a distressed sale of some sort. So let's say, for example, I put 45,000 in to acquire the asset. And the goal is somewhere between two to three years, maybe four years. I think the, the deal, the contract term says 60 months. But I'm going to get, um, I think the it was 8% interest. As a, so there's the, there's the lending component, which is, you know, I'm getting 8%. I'm, I'm first in line on the mortgage, so I am the bank. But the super sexy thing about this deal was I get 45% of the profit on sale. Yeah. So, and that's why, you know, I do say the way that deals are structured and how you go about doing them, there's like millions of permutations. And so, you know, don't hold this up as the, the benchmark for how all deals should be. It's, it's every deal's different, as we said. And it's really about saying, well, what feels fair and equitable for you? And are you able to maybe give tips or, or sort of strategies around how to determine what's going to be fair value for different parties? So let's say, for example, just take a simple joint venture with two partners. One is maybe the, the money partner who brings in the money to fund the deal and then the other one's the the joint venture partner who does the, um, let's call them working partner who does the the finding of the deal actually does whatever they need to do, whether it be developing it, subdividing it, renovating the property, whatever, to be able to generate that profit. If it's just two simple partners, what would you do in that convers- or what would you recommend in those conversations that they have to be able to determine, you know, what's fair and equitable? You know, we're not going to put a percentage specifically around this, but what things that they need to be aware of that they need to consider when putting together a joint venture deal? Well, first off, I think it's very unlikely that an average Joe investor is going to be the person putting the deal together. Um, What I think is what I said earlier, the more experienced the JV partner, the less flexible they're probably going to be about what the terms of the deal are. And as the investor, your job is to have a set of rules for what you will and won't do and then apply those rules to every deal. So in this case, you know, if you're someone that just says, well, look, um, I like the deal, I like the strategy, I like where we are in the market, I like the downside protection, but I don't like that I only get 10% profit, this this partner will probably just go, okay, next. Move on to the next one, yep. <laughs> They've got a ready, in fact, you know, the better quality, the, the JV partner, the less they need your money. You know, they they have waiting lists of investors. And, you know, come on, like I go, like you get 2% in the bank right now and you they're offering you somewhere between, let's say, 15 to 20 on a short-term deal for a small amount of money. You know, I, I think to quibble about, well, I'm only getting 10% profit share would be foolish. So I, I think it's about using some common sense. If you're working, like the more inexperienced you are as an investor, the more important it is you find experienced JV partners. The more experienced you are as an investor, maybe your capacity to discern good deals from bad deal is better. So maybe you would, 
if you found the right person who had less experience, maybe you'd take a punt on them, but you'd expect a bigger profit share. But I think in either scenario, what you're really trying to do is mitigate risk. Um, you know, you're more experienced, they're less experienced, but you get paid accordingly. So I think, um, I'm not sure if that answers the questions. Oh, it's good. It's good. I mean, that that's just some factors for people to actually think about, you know, from an investing point of view. And, and also too, I probably want to add as well is how much work would you need to put in? If you're an investor, we say, you know, as a money partner going to a deal, would you be expected to do any more work than just investing the money? And if you are, then you would obviously want to have a little bit more profit share or percentage of, you know, the deal as well too. You know, just from experience, if I didn't need to do any more of the accounting work or manage, you know, expectations of another investor, et cetera, I would, and I would have just put my money in just passively without having to do too much and just get updates on a monthly basis. Uh, yeah, I would have expected less in the deal, but because I was doing a little bit of extra work in there and it was quite in-depth and involved, I said to him, look, you know, I'm going to be doing this X and X, Y. I would expect I'd have a lot more. And that, that, that's where you got to present your case as well, you know, as an investor because you've got to sell yourself. You know, it's not as easy as just walking and say, I'm going to give you X, Y, and Z, and that's it, and I'm done. I'm going to walk away and you tell me back in 12 months, you return my money. It's not as simple as that. You still have to negotiate. You have to sell yourself and, and state the reasons and put a case forward to why. So That is such a good point. Like, And I just want to add to that, you know, don't go into a JV deal unless you feel experienced enough to, to ride the roller coaster because depending on it, you know, there may be, it may be very smooth sailing and it may not be. But if you prove to be a pain in the butt as an investor during the course of the deal, do you think that JV partner will ever want to work with you again? So one of the things I'm very mindful of, um, and even with guys in, in the program, is before I introduce them to someone, I'm like, you make sure that you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's and you've asked every niggly question you've got before you participate because, um, you know, what? No, what, one of the great things I, I see and I hear from friends who are very successful in whatever niche that they're in is the worst thing possible is dealing with a pain in the butt, high maintenance investor. And um, the friend that I mentioned earlier who's um, become quite a successful developer He's just stopped because he just doesn't want to deal with the emotional, um, I guess, feedback that comes from working with investors. Yeah, and that's so true and, and, and hence the reason why, you know, if, if you're going into any type of deal uh, as, a, as maybe a developer or as an investor and if, if you know, you ever work with me, we also do what we call some personality profile questions and testing as well too just to check to see because we want to make sure we're dealing with people who understands and has invested before. You know, this is not for a newbie, you know, who's just starting out. You know, if you want to go in that path, then I highly recommend, uh, yeah, taking some education and, and, you know, perhaps even looking at Celine's program and so forth like that. But that's the thing. You need to also be aware as an investor of what you you know, you're capable of and if you're able to sleep at night by letting someone else invest your money, you can't be calling them every week and say, you know, what's happening, what's happening, tell me, I'm worried, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's got to be an investment, you know, passive but at the same time, sell the reason why you've got to be part of that joint venture if you decide to go into it.
Thank you to Selena Kilkarni from Freedom Warriors on this special episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040.